We're your hosts, Alexa and Melissa. Our new sound is brought to you by the very talented Aaron Moses. We are so excited that you are joining us today. Thank you, thank you. We had the wonderful opportunity and privilege to interview Beth Guckenberger. If you are not familiar with Beth, you will um, just get to hear her story and will be so thrilled and excited that you listen to this episode to find out more about her. She is an author and a speaker, a mom, a wife, and she just does so many amazing things and just has a personal testimony that is just wonderful. I mean, she just has a heart of gold. One of her latest books is Start With Amen, How I Learned to Surrender by Keeping the End in Mind. She talks a little bit about that book and just shares kind of her family's um, first steps to becoming a family and how it didn't look exactly how they planned, but it turned out even better than they imagined. So we hope you enjoy this conversation today with Beth. All right. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to have Beth Guckenberger with us today. Say hi, Beth. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and um, just sharing your time with us and your story. So we're really excited. So Beth, for just our listeners who aren't familiar with you, do you want to just first give an overview of who you are and just a little bit of background information? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Beth Guckenberger and I was... Uh, my husband and I met through the Ministry of Young Life in high school. We went away to Indiana University in college, came back as teachers to our hometown um, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and worked. Um, the school year had the summers free all through the mid and late 90s. Um, during that time frame, we took high school students on summer mission trips, and uh, it was one of those trips that we had a pretty life-defining experience that changed the trajectory of of just about everything that I had known before. We moved to Mexico in the summer of 1997, um, and today we are the directors of an organization called Back to Back Ministries that we that we started on that um, very first trip. Um, Back to Back had never had any kind of international presence before, so when we moved to Mexico, we brought that presence with us. Today, we're in nine different sites, about 300 staff, um, that was over 20 years ago. We are actively parenting adoptive foster and biological children. Um, there's 11 of them now in total. Wow. And Whoa. <laughs> I'm a writer and a speaker and uh, delighted to be here today with you all. Oh, thank you. So what do you not do? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> things I definitely don't do. <laughs> Every yes requires some, some kind of no. Right. Yeah. So what was that experience you had that made you want to move to Mexico? Yeah, we were leading a mission trip that wasn't as meaningful as I knew that mission trips could be. We had been involved with a ministry called Crew in college and had had some really meaningful experiences with them. So when we were on this trip, we were painting a wall and nobody really cared. And we rerouted our students um, to a local orphanage that we found. And the orphanage director told us when we got there that kids hadn't had meat in over a year and the uh, front windows were broken. So we set about to do something about that. And the kids were taking more food from the table that we were serving from than, than we realized they were capable of eating. And I followed one of the little four-year-old girls back to her dorm room with a fresh plate of food, probably her fifth plate she had come for. And I saw in that door frame of her dorm room that all the little preschools were, were helping each other lift up their mattresses and they were hiding plates of food underneath mm -hmm. them. And wow. I just kept 
thinking about all the they were just hamburgers but I kept thinking about all the people I knew who'd buy hamburgers for an orphan if they only knew how to get them there yeah. and that that really started um, a conversation between Todd and I about what it would look like to build a bridge between somewhere in the world where there was a need and people we knew who had a heart to serve and so we spent that whole year that next year just praying and we were double income no kids so we had more money than we really needed we put one of our teaching salaries in a bank account and lived off of the other the end of that year we thought we were sitting on a treasure it was one year yep. of our teaching salary but it was more money than we'd ever had we were 24 years old and right um we we used that seed money to move and that that sustained us for the next year in mexico as we were trying to learn the culture and learn the language and build some relationships that we thought um, and hoped would sustain. Wow. Wow. And so when you were there for the year in Mexico, were you both working or was it there to be with the orphanage or? Yes, we were. um, Our full-time jobs were really engaging with vulnerable children. So we were discovering orphanages, trying to figure out what they needed, trying to get those needs met through contacts we had in the U.S. We had prayed that 50 people would come and visit us that year. We thought we could get 50 people to get on an airplane and come to Mexico and see up front what the needs were, like, on that front line. That that would be sending home 50 advocates. But by the end of that first year, we'd had 350 people come visit. Actually, Jesus had loved the orphan in Mexico for a long time before we ever showed up, and he just put us in the right place at the right time. And realizing that we could steward the opportunity to serve kids that might not otherwise have a voice in a a place where they needed to be heard that that became pretty compelling for us so yes it was our full-time job and has been ever since wow that's incredible and i feel like when you um hear about those stories like you know you want to help out but when you actually see it in person when you see starving kids I just feel like, I mean, that must just be heartbreaking and just seeing it firsthand must be so different than just hearing about it. Right. Yeah, for sure. And and the things that I learned first about kids from Mexico, I've learned to be true from kids in a, all over the world. In fact, this week right. I was living um, here in my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, and there were some vulnerable kids who had experienced trauma and I was looking at them thinking you remind me of every Indian kid I know or or Nigerian kid I know or Haitian kid I know who've had similar life experiences Uh like trauma is trauma no matter what where we're from and no matter what color we are what culture we've been in um her kids they they have a pretty consistent need for safe adults and yep felt safety and attention and love and good words and good experiences and so anyway we that journey started in 97 of us just trying to get our heads wrapped around what what were the needs I got pregnant that first year we were there so I didn't even I I mean I just kept thinking I was like allergic to Mexican food and then we figured out we were pregnant and I was delighted about the baby that was growing in my belly but I also always had a heart um, for adoption and I knew that this story was going to include for us um, adopted children so yeah that, that those seeds were all there in the very very beginning mm-hmm. and so can you tell us the story about you with having your first child and your desire to adopt and just kind of the process of adopting your first child mm-hmm. absolutely so the first year we were there we people would say to us 
well, we, we had basically fallen in love with a set of sisters that were one in three, and we tried to adopt them while we were there that first year, and felt like God had given us some green lights and had a sense of peace about it. And then in the middle of that process, it got disrupted, which I don't know if any of your listeners will relate to the disappointment that occurs when you feel like God's led you into something and then it yeah. doesn't hold the way you think it's going to. And at the end of that first year, we had a you know two-month-old baby that we were driving home with. Um, our money had run out. It was time for us to go back and get all organized. But it, I like was so happy about my daughter. But I was driving away from Mexico with a broken heart because I I had wanted to adopt a child and it hadn't happened. And I can remember kind of outing my way up through Texas. Like I I've already demonstrated in eight weeks I'd be a good mom. Like how come we can't make this happen? You know. And then. Um, some some friends of ours traded us places and they began to live in the house he had been living in in mexico um their their role and responsibility was to keep the ministry that we had begun that year kind of going while we went and and raised some more funds and got more um formalized and so uh todd we got back and my husband todd became the assistant principal at a local school while we were that that year getting all organized and um, the first day of school our friends from Mexico called me at home and I was home with our, at that point, four month old daughter. And I could tell there was some craziness going on in the background because they were shouting and screaming and they were yelling at me that this little girl that we all love, this little four year old girl had been hit by a car. And they were just like, where do we go? Like, where do we take her? And how do we pay? And who do we ask for? And what do we say? And, and I was, they'd only been there a few weeks and I was kind of yelling at them through the phone, like go to this hospital and ask for this doctor. Yeah. I could figure out the answers to all their questions, but I couldn't figure out how I could pay them. I mean, I, today I know all about international wire, wire transfers, but in those days I couldn't, I just didn't know enough about those things. And I was like, right. how do I get them the money they need? And so I looked down at my daughter and she's, you know, babies are pretty portable when they're four months old. And I thought, um, I was in Cincinnati and I was like, you know what? There's a flight at noon that will take me to Monterey. I'm going to jump on that plane. I'll bring some cash with me. You go to the hospital. I'll be there by dinner. I'll meet you there. And they're in a crisis. So they're like, okay, okay, okay. That sounds great. Bye. <laughs> and I, uh, I just wrote my husband a note. It was the first day of school. I knew he was going to be really busy with all his responsibilities there. And I didn't want to bother him. So I just left him a note like, hey, Emma and I ran back to Mexico. I'll be back by the weekend. Um, you know, took a bunch of money. Love yeah. you. I'll call you later. Don't and worry. Out. Oh my gosh. I jumped on the plane and we went straight to the hospital from the airport. And um, that little girl, Ruth, I can tell you, has fully recovered, recovered from her injuries. And then we drove back to the house that I had been living in the year before that my friends had been in for a few weeks. And the phone rang and everybody looked at me like, oh, you answer the phone and face the music because they thought for sure it was my husband. And when I picked up my phone, it wasn't him. It was somebody who was looking for me, and I shouldn't have been at the house that night. And if my friends had answered the phone, they would not have understood what they were saying. But it was someone who was networking, looking for a family, American family, that was paperwork ready and interested in executing an immediate adoption for a um, two-month-old baby boy who had been born the very weekend I was pouting my way up through Texas. And, wow. Um, he was in another state, a whole airplane ride from where I was, and I'd never been to that state. And the court date was the following day at noon. And so they were just like, are you interested? I know you have everything ready because we had had our paperwork done from those little girls that didn't right. finish. And so I said, 
okay, I think so. I mean, I was, I had watched God that whole year give a gift to us, like a peace gift, like the gift where you have more questions than answers, but God still comes for you in those moments. And I, I, I had, I knew how to recognize it. I had felt it so many times that year before. And so I was like, I could feel that God's hand was in it, even though I was afraid and had questions and was like, oh my gosh, what's I going to think? And I grabbed the phone. Yeah, and I said, this call home's getting more interesting by the minute. Yeah. <laughs> I called um, my husband and I just said, this is how Ruth is doing and this is this phone call I got. And what do you think? You think we're supposed to do this tomorrow? And he just took a moment in that call to like, you know, make some space for God to come. And that, that's really, to me, when I look back on that story, that's the most important part of it is, God has told his people all throughout the Bible to make room for him and that he comes in that space. And we had to make room for him, like a tabernacle in that conversation, like come and fill the space, like give us what we don't have, wisdom, discernment, mercy, self-control, patience, peace, all of it. And um, he came and met us there. And I said, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow in Bear Cruz. And so the next day we went and um, flew from two different places and met each other and went to court and uh, received our son. And almost immediately, I knew there was something wrong with him. He was, his legs were scissored, and he, he had this fungus that was growing on him, and he, his, he lost some of his birth weight, and his belly was bloated, and his arms were frozen in a position I couldn't get him to stretch out, and he was very stressed out and panting a lot. And so we're looking at our, you know, cross-legged, fungus-covered, frozen-armed, brown little baby, like, oh my gosh, isn't he so cute? <laughs> and. We completed the adoption in about six weeks, and by the time I got him back to the United States, I knew, I knew that God had asked us to be his parents. I knew I was in love with him, but I knew that his body was really broken in ways I wasn't even sure how to describe. Yeah, we went yeah. to a bunch of doctor's appointments. Eventually, after lots of tests, the neurologist told us at the Children's Hospital that there are four degrees of cerebral palsy, mild, moderate, severe, and profound, and he had severe cerebral palsy, and he's like, I don't think he's going to talk. I don't think definitely not going to walk. I don't know if he'll ever live independently. And the faster you get yourself comfortable with that diagnosis, the better off for this baby it's going to be. And this guy didn't even realize it, but he was standing on my my spiritual bruise, like this place in my heart that I thought had been healed, but it really hadn't. Because the year before we moved to Mexico, my wonderful father at age 51 went home to be with the Lord after a battle with cancer and I had begged God to heal him in that year and he hadn't done it even though I asked in all the ways my Bible told me to and so the only way I reconciled that loss of my dad was just this like maybe God doesn't heal anymore maybe he doesn't heal for everybody and so I'm in this appointment with this doctor and he didn't even realize it but he was stirring up some old questions I had really not ever answered and I didn't even know how to pray for him, uh, my son. All of our plans for Mexico decided to um, be put on hold because he needed some extraordinary medical care. And my, our friends continued to live in Mexico and we continued to manage the ministry from the US. And um, we were in some doctor's appointment every day. We were at occupational therapy and physical therapy and he did like a magnetic therapy and a hot water therapy and I was in therapy. Everybody was busy going to therapy. and <laughs> and. For 18 months, he had no improvements and no milestone movement. And then one day, this lady came from the county to our house to 
show me the way they do in early intervention programs how to use my natural habitat for his therapeutic benefit. And she told me when she watched him, he would his muscles were hypertonic, so that meant like very tight. Most movement was pretty painful for him. He sweated a lot, cried a lot. And my daughter was his same age, and she was very mobile. So she would walk over to wherever he was and take his toy away from him, and he would cry, and I would go get the toy and rearrange his body. And this this therapist was watching that whole story, and she was like, you rescue him too much. You need to let him struggle some more. And I told her to get out of my house. I said, listen, all day long, all we ever do is dangle chairs in front of this kid. Like, he struggles all day long. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I escorted her out, but I didn't forget what she said. And a couple hours later, when all of that was still happening, he was crying and she was taking away his toy and I was rearranging his body. I, I just started to cry with him. And I was crying about him, but I was also crying about not going back to Mexico. And then I was crying about losing my dad and just the way grief comes like that in waves. And I left the room for a minute, which is no big deal because he can't go anywhere. And then I could hear him from the other room kind of his voice started to change his like cry started to change and so I went back in the room where he was to see what was going on and he was on his belly kind of army crawling and wasn't really all that attractive but it was like he hadn't done before so I got in front of him and started to kind of coax him forward and after he moved a few feet I left the room to go get um, a phone to call my mom to come over and a camera like a video camera to film what he was doing to show his dad later. And yeah. when I got back in the room with those two things, I just dropped them because he had gotten all the way across our family room and got stuck up against a couch, like a couch that had like a fabric skirt. And he was holding on to the fabric of that skirt and he was like rocking himself a little bit. But it, again, it wasn't really that like coordinated or attractive, but he popped himself up to a stand. And when he stood up at the stand, I was like, I, I knew I was looking at something supernatural, but like not yeah. everything was totally registering in that moment. Uh-huh. And then he, he held onto the couch and he kind of, he did what they call it in physical therapy, cruising. Like he, he walked across the length of the couch holding onto it and then he got to the end and he pivoted on his heel and he walked over into my arms. And I didn't even know, like, I didn't even know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I grabbed them both, stuck them in the car, drove them as fast as I could to where their dad was, probably never even buckled them in, got to the Christian school where he was working, like took out the shrubs in the circle driveway. He came out of the building to find out what was going on. I just stuck my son on the ground. He kind of walks over to where to where his dad was. Todd and I have this like moment where we're just like, just hugging and crying and laughing and talking soccer fields and wedding aisles and like just this like crazy moment and then he looks at me and he goes I know where you're going next I'm like I'm totally going down to see that doctor like I I need someone to tell me what am I looking at yeah and I drove them both down to the hospital and finally got him to look at us for a few minutes and I want I was listening for words like medical miracle like can somebody please tell me like this is like this is a miracle and eventually he would write something about being with his sister all day was like being in therapy all the time because he was modeling her movements and motivated by her. But I don't know what you like. I just knew that everything started to change in that moment. And we made plans to return back to Mexico where we lived for the next 15 years. And as soon as we got back to Mexico, we 
I mean, I'm not too much longer after that. In Mexico, you play a lot of soccer. So we put Evan eventually on a soccer team there, like a little preschool soccer team. And he would run down the field and like kick a goal. And I would wow. just be crying on the sidelines because his body showed after that point no um, no evidence ever of his previous diagnosis. And then oh my gosh. he'd be like in fourth grade, like playing on the soccer team. And I'd be on the sidelines, you know, crying about his goals or whatever. And I was, uh, I was his white blonde mom and he was Mexican like all the rest of the boys so he'd be looking at them like who do you think that American lady is over there crying <laughs> <laughs> <like> to claim me <laughs> then he got into like high school and he'd say mommy you can't travel with the team this weekend if you're gonna cry when I score and <laughs> when he turned 16 we moved back to the United States and um, in Ohio where we moved they play a lot of football so he learned how to catch the football and um, this year he'll be a senior at Taylor University where he plays the wide receiver position um, wow. as a player. And I got a chance this year to speak at his school chapel and I was telling them the story of his healing, which he of course doesn't even really remember. And I right. called him up on the stage at the part where he started walking and they all of a sudden were putting it all together that I was talking about this kid that they knew at school. and the student body began to respond, like just started to like roar at him. And I stopped them and I said, listen, the reason I tell you something like so personal about us is because it's important for us to know in this day, in this time, that with God, still all things are possible. That yeah. I'm the same girl that had the same faith for two people that I love the same, my dad and my son. And I asked the same God, for the same thing and one of those stories did not turn out the way I wanted it to and one of those stories turned out better than I ever asked for and at the end of the way that God healed my spiritual bruise was he, he took me to a place where I had to acknowledge that he's sovereign and that if he writes the story it's the best story that there is to be told and that he is not made in my image I am made in his image he's not a genie God that we can like rub our bellies and I hope that he gives us three wishes like mm -hmm. so there is this like there is literally this testimony I feel compelled to share we went on yeah. to have a bunch more biological children and we had a house full of uh, teenage girls that we fostered and we adopted three more times after Evan and wow. there's like something about that that moment in my personal spiritual journey that I'll just always keep with me that God God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And we just have to praise him for it, no matter how it unfolds. And so that that's, continues. Uh, Evan will be 21 this summer. I mean, that continues to be a journey that I um, I just wrap my brain around because I think he's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I would love for his grandfather to have been here to enjoy his presence. And I don't always understand why stories like our original adoption didn't unfold the way I wanted it or my dad felt the way I wanted it. But it doesn't impact the call I have to be obedient and faithful. And that's, it's been a good story in my mothering journey to realize that with God still all things are possible. Absolutely. Wow. Like, that's just amazing. Like, and I've heard that story before. Like, I've heard you tell it before. Like, and it's just like, so, like, I just have like chills and like, it's just, yeah. wow. Yeah. Ah, well, and so now you said you have 11 children total? Mm-hmm. We do. Oh, man. And so how many are living at your house? 
So the last three at the house are three. Um, so the oldest ones, the oldest seven are girls and the youngest four were boys. So Evan's the oldest boy at 21. I have a 19 year old son, a 17 year old son and a 16 year old son. So I just have, um, I have the, one of them's getting ready to graduate high school this coming week. So he'll go away to college uh-huh. next year. And as of the fall, I'll just have two little guys left, although they're not very little anymore. But um, yeah, it's been a, a 20 plus year of journey of parenting of all kinds of kids. Um, but there's there's lots of joy in it. Yeah, that's amazing. And um, you touched briefly just about your ministry. Can you just tell our listeners just as we wrap up just a little bit about that and what you guys do? Absolutely. We um, so Back to Back Ministries offers holistic orphan care in lots of places around the world. Um, any of your listeners can get involved by going on a short term trip or by deciding to be interested in sponsoring one of the children or just by getting on the website to learn a little bit more about what's going on in orphan care. So the website is just back in the number two back.org back to back. Okay. Back to back. Awesome. And I know you mentioned that you're an author as well. And so your latest book start with amen. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great story to end with. So I, I was, living in Mexico and we would drive up to Texas every couple months to buy what we called border goodies like things that I cannot believe people don't live with in Mexico like cheddar oh. cheese and you know iced <laughs> tea and dark chocolate chips or whatever that's yeah. funny <laughs> one day we were um walking in an outlet a Texas outlet and I saw a purse in the window and I up until that point I mean all the purses I'd ever carried were very utilitarian they were carrying contingency pans for you know seven eight nine people like right rain boots and homework and mm-hmm. you know snack so Poppins, you know. they weren't very attractive <laughs> I saw this like purple suede purse in the window and I, it immediately caught my eye the next time I walked by I was like I wonder what it feels like and then the next time I walked by I'm like I wonder how much it costs and it was more really than I ha- had ever budgeted for a purse with my missionary lifestyle but yeah. it didn't stop me I eventually bought that thing and took it home and I carried it it was super impractical for the life I was living it was little and suede and purple and <laughs> I carried it for a few weeks until it got stolen out of my car and oh. when it got stolen I was thinking I kind of got what I had come in like I I shouldn't have even done that in the first place and I wasn't a good steward like I was kind of beating myself up a little bit and I so further by carrying one of my daughter's purses and then I was coming to the United States to speak somewhere and I realized how silly I look like the missionary lady and like adult and I have this like little girl purse on my shoulder so on my way to the church I decided I'm going to stop at this like strip mall and buy a purse Um, and the only store when I pulled in that I thought might sell a purse was an accessory store like a luggage store so I walk in there and they had this like leather backpack and I was like that's perfect it's kind of practical it's attractive I just grabbed it off the rack and went up to pay for it and the lady told me how much it was going to cost and it was the same amount as that purple coach purse I'd had so I was like oh, I'm definitely not doing that and so I left it behind and I went to church and then I drove to my mom's house in Cincinnati which was our U.S. mailing address and I was just going to spend the night before going back to Mexico the next day and I had a birthday since I'd been there last and one of my college roommates had sent a package to my mom's house and I sat on the edge of my childhood bed and I opened up this package and the first thing I said when I looked inside of it was out loud to myself, but really the Lord, I said, Jesus, you are literally always reintroducing yourself to me because I was positive you did not care about purses. 
because inside that package was the leather backpack I'd held in my hands just a couple hours before then. Oh my gosh. That night I was, I called her to thank her for the gift and found out that she had purchased that bag a while ago. And I just laid in bed that night thinking that the Lord had put into motion a solution to a problem I hadn't even had yet. Oh, and wow. Maybe that he was doing that in more areas than just, you know, my accessories. And so I, I just kept saying amen, like, which means literally so be it. I just kept saying like, amen, amen, amen. And then finally my heart kind of calmed down and I was like confessing my sins and asking for stuff. And at the end, I just finished by acknowledging who I was talking to. And I was like, oh dear Jesus. And I realized I had inverted my prayers. I had started with amen and I had finished with dear Jesus. And I've prayed that way every day since, and that's been about 14 years. Um, I start always with the word amen, and there's something about acknowledging God's sovereignty and his goodness and his in-chargeness. Mm-hmm. Um, I start that way. That helps my heart settle and us to have a more meaningful conversation. So anyway, I read a whole book about different ways in which that's impacted my wifing and mothering and, lo- and living and friending and all of that. Very wow. neat. Wow. I can't wait to read it. That's going to be on my summer bucket list. <laughs> Enjoy it. Let me know what you think. couple weeks. Woo! <laughs> well, Beth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and share your story. I mean, it's just so powerful, and um, we're so excited to look at the back-to-back ministries and to support you and to read your book. So thank you very much for sharing your personal life with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me today, guys. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye, Bye. Beth. Thank you. Uh Bye-bye. Oh, man. I am so glad we had the opportunity to have Beth share her story with all of you. Her story is so powerful and just moving, and I'm so glad that she's able to share her experiences with all of us. And I think we all need a reminder sometimes that You know, God is always there for us. And even though sometimes we don't think that our prayers are being answered right away, our prayers are always answered, but not always on the exact day we'd like them to be. And Beth's story is a great example of that and how God can make anything possible. So thank you, Beth, for sharing your story. And it really, it really touched my heart. If you would like to follow Beth a little closer, she is on social media at B. Guckenberger. And you can also follow um, her ministry, B2B Ministries. That's the number two. And you can always check out her website, www.back2back, with a two, number two, dot org. And please check out her latest book, Start With Amen. And always, please subscribe below. Thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your week.